It's Dr. Stu's Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. And I'm here with my protege, the blisterious one, Bliss Young. You can catch her at birthingbliss at gmail.com. No, Hotmail. Oh, Hotmail.com. I'm old school. Man, I didn't even know they had Hotmail anymore. <laughs> All right, let's start over again. I'm Dr. Stu, your host, and I'm here with my blisterious one, birthing <laughs> Bliss Young. Never mind. Uh, anyway, you can catch us on iTunes. You can catch us on birthinginstincts.com and hit the banner. You can go to drstuespodcast.com or find us on Facebook. Uh, we hope you'll uh, listen and spread the word. And I want to give a heartfelt apology to all our loyal listeners for the fact that the blisterious one and I have been very busy doing births and we've uh, been remiss in getting our podcast done on time. Yeah, I was. I think it was me that canceled last time because I was just exhausted. Yeah, I think okay. it was like I think twice actually, <laughs> but, that, but that's okay because Sorry, we have a, we guys. have a producer who is very flexible and and uh, we love working with John. Mm-hmm. Uh, so listen, we're 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 here today um, to talk about a lot of stuff, but I first wanted to just say that um, it's we've been very very active. In uh, in birthing lately, and yeah, I, think I feel we should, like we've been working a lot together. Yeah, lately I think too. we should. I think we should probably catch up on a little bit of that sort of thing. Okay, before wait. I, before you do that, oh, I did, got a lot of stuff. Did to do. you did you just create a new nickname for me, Blisterious? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Keep them coming. Yeah, well, that's because because you Blisterious. are Blisterious. Mm, I like this one. Yeah, well, you <laughs> like it better. Than, you like it better than the old one, Blister. Yeah, they're both pretty cute. Yeah, well. <laughs> You only, only, give, you, only you, you. You only give nicknames to to people that you are endeared to. So this is true. That's true. You know. Well, that's not actually true. You sometimes give nicknames to people you don't like very much, but oh. they're usually negative nicknames. Okay, so we're good. Yeah. Blister's blister is not. A, blister is not a negative <laughs> nickname. It's but yeah, you're blister in front of other people, but on the podcast, you are the blisterious one. I really like that. Yeah, you have to add the one to the end though. <laughs> Yes. Blisterious one. You are the blisterious one. Oh, the blisterious one. <laughs> okay, moving on. All right. So listen. So I just want to keep, bring people up to date. We, we've been very busy um, giving talks and things like that. Uh, things are, are really picking up. The breech birthing world is becoming uh, more aware of the of the fact that there's options out there. And I've done a couple of classes since our last podcast. I don't know if we talked last time about the. Um, uh, the Hawaii trip. I think I, I think yeah. we've had a podcast you since did. that time, mm-hmm. uh, but that has led to many other options. And and even though we're we're leaving the bamboo in behind, <laughs> and we're moving on to other things, we uh, I'm gonna we had a ICANN meeting in Santa Barbara, which was really good, uh, talking with mothers and some illustrious people in the birthing world on the value of VBAC and the fact that Santa Barbara still bans it. Uh, I did a Another breach conference in San Diego with about 15 uh, midwives, which is about the number that I like to have mm-hmm. for the uh, hands-on part. Uh, the lecture part, it'd be great to have 100 people, 200 people, 10 people, 2 people. But for the hands-on part, you really can't have more than about 15 people per session because otherwise... Yeah, it takes too long. Not everybody gets a chance to do as many simulations as you'd like. So who was your Vanna? Who was who? Your, your push. Remember we talked about I should come along because you're going to like Barcelona. Oh, somebody just, yeah, somebody just, yeah, especially because my right shoulder has been giving me lots and lots of trouble. So you just picked somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, it was in the middle of doing a vaginal ultrasound yesterday, I had to actually stand up and switch hands because my shoulder mm. went out. John and I were talking before you got here today about the fact that uh, I think every, no one wants to say this, but everyone says that as you get older, uh, it's, it's, it's the shits. 
<laughs> it is because things start giving out. Yeah. You know, your brain doesn't want it to give out, mm-hmm. but your uh, your body just doesn't always come along. It's kind yeah. of well, the suture you did for me the other day probably didn't help your shoulder. The suture or the, the suture the that suture you, ring. The suture ring that you came in different. <laughs> yeah, it took, which we'll more, talk about it took almost an hour. We can did talk it? about it right now if you want. Mm-hmm. We'll get to the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened? Um, beautiful, uh, prime up delivery. Um, and we had some bleeding right before crown, a substantial amount of bleeding in the tub. So we got her out and, um, had a very quick delivery. Um, and she had a sizable tear all the way <laughs> down. Sizable. Is that a quantifiable, uh, is that a new term we're going to use? Now? Sizable. Yeah. yeah. Fourth degree. Fourth degree tear. She um, had, right? And so we had the option of going into the hospital. Boo. Oh. Piss boo. <laughs> or boo. calling. Look at the crowd just doesn't like that at all. <laughs> we should have sound effects. I keep talking about this. <laughs> we're too cheap for that. <laughs> one day. One day we get a sponsor one day. Anybody out there, by the way, who wants to sponsor us, John would be more than happy to take your money. <laughs> <laughs> Renee says that we have to get more reliable in terms of our timing That's to get true a sponsor. Too. Yeah. You but can't really have a sponsor when you don't podcast <laughs> regularly. Anyone who's okay with us not being regular and wants to sponsor us. But anyways, um so I picked up the phone and called you and unfortunately <laughs> forgot to ask if you were available and just started asking when you were coming and you're like, uh, wait a minute. You have to ask if I'm available first. Yeah, so. unfortunately, my social life has pretty been slow. So calling me at about <laughs> 9.45 at night, it's a good chance I'm available. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so it was funny. I, it was funny because you just assumed that I... I did. I know. I just needed you. I wanted you with me. So, um, And uh, they agreed that that would work for them. And so you came over and, and helped out with this uh, fourth degree tear. And you said it took about an hour. Yeah, it took a, after it took about 45 minutes to drain her bladder. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did. Yeah. And, we, and then three, three or five attempts to start an IV, I guess, right? Three by me. Many. Yeah, because she was so dehydrated yeah. and had lost um, probably about a thousand cc's at that point. But, she, but, you know, when I got there, she didn't look that bad. And you had yeah. her up to the bathroom and she hadn't gotten dizzy right she felt a little dizzy right. but it was it was manageable we were managing but we got it. Her, but, but giving her an iv was, was a really smart move and one of the things we talked about by the way is is it's true for pretty much everything that we do with home birthing if something enters your mind as the thought that maybe you should do something you probably should do something mm-hmm. so if you think someone should have an iv because they've lost a lot of blood or they're looking a little dizzy then don't say well let's just wait a little longer and see no no start the iv right and as you said afterwards you were, you know, you don't think of this off very often, no. but you said when that baby's head was crowning and you needed to get that baby out quickly, you said you thought about cutting an episiotomy. I did. Right. But then you didn't do it because the Because the baby was coming quickly. Yeah, and the resistance. Mm-hmm. But when, when the- actually a midwife who isn't prone to doing episiotomies thinks that maybe someone should have an episiotomy, they probably should cut an episiotomy. It's not the worst thing in the world to do that. Yeah. And in this case, it might, it might or might not have prevented her from getting a fourth degree. You don't really from know. Opinion, Sometimes no. fourth degrees will just extend right off into the rectum anyway. Yeah. So right. my assumption was, and and by I the mean, way, the this baby right. we found out later, many, many, many hours <laughs> later in yeah. the exam, was a 10 pound, three ounce baby born to a first time mama and a 14 and three quarter inch head. So um, upon like kind of going back and thinking about it, I talked to one of my other mentors and she said, you really can't cause 
that kind of tear from from pushing quickly. She said more than likely what was happening is that there was an elbow that came through and that was what I saw earlier. And I asked them, we talked, debriefed with the mom later and she said that she did feel something. So that's probably, it was probably It's very possible. It could be once the head is out, it could be the posterior arm that tears it through. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, it doesn't really have to have a reason fourth degrees happen. Unfortunately. They happen. Fourth degrees happen. Right. (laughs) You know, and we had, uh, and, and the repair of a fourth degree at home is a little more difficult because you don't have an epidural. So you do use a lot of local anesthesia and you don't have great lighting. Yeah. And, uh, but I have, you know, decent instruments. I have a gel- what's called a gelpy retractor, which helps to spread things so you can find the apex of the mucosal tear in the rectum and you mm-hmm. close that in two layers and, you know, it's sort of bloody and, you know, you, you use your finger a lot. And people, oh, one of the things that people, even the husband asks later, do I have to worry about infection because we're talking about, you know, the rectal area. And right. what's amazing about that area is that there's a lot of lymph, lymph um, and auto um, yeah, and immune system stuff down there, and the the idea well lymph takes you know brings your white cells and all mm-hmm. that stuff, and um, it's really 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 rare to see an infected episiotomy or an infected perineal laceration uh, repair uh, or even a fourth degree, even when you're doing rectal exams. I mean we use iodine, but obviously you can't sterilize that area. It's not a sterile procedure. Right. And uh, I've, in all my years, I don't think, I, I've seen one breakdown. Only uh, one. In the one that I repaired. I've mm-hmm. seen other people come to me with the, where they've had them break down. Mm-hmm. And, the, and when the way it breaks down is that the mucosal above the sphincter will, will break through into the vagina and they get what's called a fistula. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, we won't know for two, three months whether, that, whether she heals properly or not. So I saw her yesterday and she was um, feeling... As surprisingly good given everything that happened and is that that's a good sign that's a good you? sign yeah that's yeah. a good sign but yeah. it's so early and she's so happy yeah i think with her baby that that yeah. you know and 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 her bottom probably just sore in general so it's hard to tell the difference but we'll see how she does in a, in a while and she's at risk for forming granulation tissue because again we couldn't even close the upper part of the vaginal mucosa because once we had done everything else things were sort of tight and it was you know, it's, a, it's an analogy that we in the obstetric world use. It's a horrible analogy. But her vaginal mucosa was getting a lot like trying to sew hamburger, mm. if, if you understand what that means. It, yeah. it just Things were just getting, you know, they, they start to tear through. So you just let, because it gets so swollen and edematous. So you just let the area heal by secondary intention. And generally it does with a small chance of forming some granulation tissue. Do you feel with, like maybe that's part of why she tore? Do you feel like maybe she, um, her tissue integrity wasn't great to begin with? Yeah, it, it's possible. Yeah. Hang on one second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got to make sure we're not being yeah, called to a yeah. birth. We have our phones sitting here. We mm-hmm. try to have them off, but uh, we're you both can. on call. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it makes it worse. I don't think it's the cause of the tear. Mm-hmm. I just think that the tissue gets beat up. And then, mm. you know, with constantly examining it, trying to throw sutures, retracting, um, injecting with lidocaine and that sort yeah, of thing. it's all know. causes trauma. Yeah. That's why sometimes we opt not to suture, which I see in the hospital, they suture pretty much everything. But from a midwifery perspective, if it's um, not bleeding, it doesn't include the muscle and the, the tissue approximates, then we'd rather not 
cause more trauma by injecting the lidocaine and throwing the sutures, which um, can inflame the tissue if we just left it alone. Most of the time it'll come together. Yeah. So an interesting point, the last thing about her that I wanted to just mention from a midwifery perspective is that you, um, of course, suggested that she follow, adhere to this um, low... Residue. Residue diet so that she doesn't have as many bowel movement so it gives that area time to heal and um yeah that's just again i am doing some one of the things that i always sometimes rail against Mm -hmm. is i'm repeating something that i learned a long time ago Mm -hmm. without really understanding whether that's actually useful or not right but it's what i learned uh in residency and all the you know those years so right uh yeah so it makes and it does seem to make sense it makes sense but it's interesting because she had blood loss there's a lot of um, nutritional recommendations that we make that conflict with this particular diet. So it's trying to figure out how do I build her blood um, and get her milk in and all of the things that blood loss can um, affect in postpartum while still trying to make sure that we um, help her not eliminate yeah, more, like, more like often We're talking about like to. iron and things, first of all. Yeah, like, like green, leafy leafy greens, juices, beet juice, stuff like that is contrary. No seeds. She's supposed to be eating like white bread, which we would never recommend, you know, st- stuff like that. So I'm having to really dig in a little bit deeper and get creative in terms of her postpartum support. You know, in the long run, it probably doesn't matter mm-hmm. if it's going to heal. It's not going to or not heal. It's not going to be because she has two bowel movements instead of one bowel movement. So right, right, right. ultimately the the recommendation that part of me probably just said that because it's been a long time since I've had a fourth degree mm-hmm. to repair and that's just the, the trigger in my brain that goes off that says, oh, fourth degree, you know, uh, avoid any trauma down there, nothing, don't do touching, don't look, don't right. put anything in there. and Don't look. Yeah, don't look is a key one. <laughs> the Frankenstein Yoni don't look for a while. <laughs> you won't like it. Yes, it's very mysterious down there. Mysterious. <laughs> okay, so yes, so All I'm right. sure you're. So shoulder. we can talk. Let's, so as long as we're talking about births, we can mm-hmm. talk about the uh, the the our, my last visit to the Bamboo Inn, which was yeah. Near, so you didn't invite me. I was already down there. Oh, okay. I didn't get to. I didn't. I haven't. I haven't talked about this birth. Well, I'll tell I, you. You know why I was down there. I was down there to speak at something called Libertopia Festival, and I was going to speak on <laughs> informed consent. Uh, you know, in the modern era, mm-hmm. and um, and what happened was they. You know, I have a PowerPoint presentation for that, and I had requested a room with a PowerPoint thing, and they bumped me at the last minute. They bumped me to a room that didn't have a PowerPoint presentation. So you just left? So I had <laughs> things to do. They were going to try to rebook me. at three. I was, supposed to, I was supposed to talk at 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Or was it 9? No, 10. 10. No, it was 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was supposed to talk at 11, I think. Uh, and then um, they, they rebooked me at 3 o'clock. But I had errands to do. I, I had I have three clients down in San Diego County mm-hmm. that I could, could was planning to do home visits on that afternoon. And so I just went off and did it. And I realized I was never going to be back by three o'clock. So I just, I just didn't do it. Yeah. Um, and when I was there, I think it's a, I think it's a nice event and there's a lot of, it's about, there's a lot of libertarian stuff about healthy eating stuff, about financial things, Bitcoin stuff that has nothing to do with what we're doing. But, th- um, but the turnout in the mornings is pretty small. I don't think people get up early. Mm-hmm. So there was very few people there. Anyway, I went to the lecture before mine given by a lawyer on, on uh, libertarianism. And there were maybe seven people in the room. And, and, you know, they're small rooms. They hold about 40. Mm-hmm. So it really, I, it, I didn't miss a lot. 
but I was great prep because I'm going to give the same talk in Portugal um, in, a, in a week now, almost a week from now. So, so exciting. I'm very excited for that mm -hmm. trip. So I got Portugal coming up and then uh, uh, Utah in October mm -hmm. uh, and possibly uh, Texas or Alabama later, later in the year. Mm -hmm. And my biggest dilemma is always going to be who's going to cover me when I'm gone. <laughs> So that that becomes a problem, and we can get yeah. to that later. We got so much to cover today on the show that I want to kind of move on. But first, yeah. I want to do talk about the twins. Yeah. Uh, I had two sets of twins last uh, last week. It'll be probably two weeks by the time this is aired. But uh, the first set was in L.A., and it was a mom at thirty-seven weeks and six days with die die twins. Uh, first twin was a boy. Second twin was a girl, and they didn't know that. They only knew they had one boy. They didn't want to know. Because they had done NIPT testing and mm. they knew they had a Y chromosome in there, but they didn't know if they had two or one. So they right. were they didn't know what the second twin was. They were very excited. And um, first twin was breached. The second twin was uh, breached up until 36 weeks and then turned to head down. So it was breached vertex twins, which I'm very comfortable with doing. Even though she's a primate, the baby was complete breach. But even ahead of time, baby B had a slightly uh, oval-shaped head. We call it dolicocephalic. And... It was a little bit lower than baby A's head. And there's been this thing that everybody worries about because I think in undiagnosed twins or long time ago, there, you know, women would come in and with a baby breech hanging out of the vagina and the heads would be stuck or what they called interlocking heads. Mm -hmm. What I call head entanglement because interlocking is this classic picture where the two chins interlock. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that it always has to be the chins. One could, head could just be sort of blocking the head, which, was the which turned out to be the case here. I always thought that the A's head would just slip by B's head. Did you ultrasound that? Or you just... Oh, no, no. I'd been following mm -hmm. them all along, and mm -hmm. I sort of knew. And even that day in labor, I double-checked. Mm -hmm. But again, I never really thought that that was going to happen because I'd never seen it. Mm -hmm. There's a paper that came out in the Green Journal in 2000 that looked at uh, breech first twins and found no evidence of interlocking heads and, and no downside to doing a breech first twin as long as it's greater than 1,500 grams. So that was sort of been my guideline because, first of all, it's in the Green Journal, which is ACOG's journal, which so gives me credence. Plus, it's been my experience with Breach's first twins that have never had a problem with it. But this one came out to about just below the umbilicus, mm -hmm. still in the call, and nothing changed. It did not descend any further. It did not. It was left sacrum transverse. So it was sideways, which we know is a sign that babies are, need help. Those babies will not come out by themselves. This is a Breach presentation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we broke the bag of waters. We tried to get the breach out with normal maneuvers. It didn't work. And so um, I feel partly because of my experience with breach deliveries and my ability with my understanding of the spatial relationships of them, I was able to reach up inside. You know, mother at that point was willing, you know, was said, do whatever, you, you know, need, whatever you need to do. Because again, we're at home. And uh, I was able to push baby B's head up out of the pelvis with my hand and, and cr uh, cradle or caress baby A's head down below it, and then it came out breach, no problem. Mm -hmm. And Apgar's a seven and nine, weighed five pounds ten. Baby B came out, weighed six pounds zero. Um, they both had Apgar's a seven and nine. They both did great. Great. So, so would you change your protocol at all? No, but I'm writing up a case report mm -hmm. uh, on the encouragement of some of my colleagues, uh, Rixa Fries specifically. She always wants me to do something academic. Didn't uh, you say you're going to name the maneuver? 
Well, I'm calling it the fulcrum maneuver because, no, I'm not going to name it. <laughs> the Dr. Stu maneuver? The blisterious, I'm going to call it the blisterious <laughs> maneuver. I wasn't at this birth. Doesn't matter. That's why it's blisterious. <laughs> <laughs> I just caused it. <laughs> no, I, I, you know what? If somebody else wants to call it some maneuver, if it, if it turns out that this is accepted and, mm-hmm. and people do it. But again, no one has experience with resolving uh, in head entanglement. There, no, there is no world experience. There's no world expert in head entanglement. So you just had to do what you had to do at that yeah, point. Yeah, and um, yeah. uh, there won't be many people using this maneuver because <laughs> you know most people with breech first twins are going to get a C-section. That's For just now. the way it works. For now. I have, I have hope. Yeah. I'm an optimist. That's why your name is Bliss. <laughs> yeah, it is nice. No, and, and so that that one, and the second birth was was great. The, this was a lady who was down in the near the Mexican border uh, mm-hmm. in San We've Diego. We've talked about them before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she went into labor at uh, one in the morning, one thirty in the morning, and and she's almost three hours away from me. We had a local midwife down there. You you drove separately because you were on the west side and I was downtown. Right. We just hustled. Uh, we just headed straight down. Baby A came out. Uh, uh, weighing eight pounds, 12 ounces. Mm-hmm. And two hours and eight minutes later, mm-hmm. baby B came out weighing nine pounds and... Six? Five. Nine, five. Uh-huh. So she had 18 pounds of baby inside of her. And almost four pound placenta. I don't know if almost four pounds. Which, <laughs> when you were delivering the placenta, it just kept coming <laughs> and coming. I was like, what is happening? We have a third baby here or yeah. what? And, I, and, and again, <laughs> because, you know, my, my usual... Uh, way of doing things I don't have rules but my is to encourage people not to go more than 30 or 45 minutes between twins mm-hmm. but she was sitting in a tub and there was absolutely no way <laughs> we were going to get her to do anything that she didn't want to do and so yeah. we just waited and waited and waited and she did have s- some moderate postpartum bleeding that we were able to get under control oh yeah she lost yeah. what we think about 1200 uh, you know what I don't know because it's been a couple weeks I yeah. don't remember but she was strong and fine and, mm-hmm. she and did great, great. Yeah. And uh, these were babies number... Five and six. Five and six. Six yeah. and seven, five and no, six. No, five and six. Five and six. Yeah. Anyway, so that was another another nice story. Uh, they lived, you know, we. I think we talked about this in the last podcast. When we were at their house, we Googled the nearest hospital, and it was in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so they really didn't live anywhere. Where they, putting this woman in a car with mm-hmm. laboring twins, or and they were absolutely against being induced. Yeah. Uh, she went to... She didn't even want to be stripped. I think she great. went to 40... Did she go to 41 weeks? No, I think just over 40. Yeah, just over 40 mm-hmm. weeks, right. Anyway, that's another nice story that we have. Yeah, so, that was awesome. Um, then we had a nice collaboration with Dr. Chavira. He did a beautiful breach delivery uh, at the hospital he works at um, on all fours mm-hmm. in a primip. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pictures are amazing. Oh, cool. Uh, so it's been a good week. Yeah. I have two more breaches out there. One of them is 41 and a half weeks already. So, you know, that's why we both look at our phones when they go off. And uh, she's also down in San Diego. And I'm going down this weekend to be in San Diego for my baby's college graduation. Oh, Hard to believe, isn't I, it? It is. Yeah. Time flies. You remember when she was just this little... Yeah, she was... I don't, I don't well, think... Well, I haven't I, known you that long. That's true. She was... I remember her when she was just... 10? Or something, yeah. Matter, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I remember her for long before that. <laughs> of course. Anyway, so did. she's graduating this weekend, so that's a big deal. Congratulations. Um, and uh, okay, so any other births you want to talk about? Anything else before we start to get to some of our um, 
some of the issues. I got stacks of stacks no, of issues. Let's here. do this. We okay. Can... Well, here's a fun one. This is from the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. April nineteenth, two thousand eighteen. Uh, so it's got a headline that sort of attracted me. So you'll see why. Is it wrong to cut a homeless man's hair without a license? <laughs> this is this has nothing edit- to do with birth. This but is, no, it's a, well, it does actually. <laughs> it's an ed- this is an editorial. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal, which is you know famous for its editorial page, mm-hmm. the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are basically the two most famous editorial pages. One tends to be conservative, one tends to be very left or liberal. And um, um, this one was just very interesting. I'm just going to read a little bit here. It says, "Last week, the Arizona Republic ran a hit piece on a man who gives homeless people free haircuts." Good for him. Juan Carlos Montes de Oca was once homeless himself, and he found many takers when he started offering the cuts a few years ago. Some of his, quote, clients, unquote, hadn't had a real haircut in years, Mm -hmm. which you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Mr. Deoka was studying cosmetology but hadn't yet received a state-issued license. So the Arizona State Board of Cosmetology opened an investigation. Its executive director pronounced Mr. Montez Deoka's charity work as a, quote, real risk, unquote. (laughs) Never mind that parents routinely cut their children's own hair. Then Governor Doug Ducey stepped in, ordering the board to end its investigation and waive any penalties against Mr. Montes de Oca. The governor has since ordered a review of state licensing board requirements to make sure they serve the public interest. So bravo for the governor of, Ari- <laughs> of Arizona. <laughs> All right. Mr. Montes de Oca's story isn't unique. Licensing laws often act as a barrier to poor people attempting to make a living and better their lives. Isis Brantley of Texas had a similar run-in with a hair police when she was arrested by undercover officers in 1997 for lacking a cosmetology, li- cosmetology license. Mrs. Brantley practiced Afri- African-style hair braiding, which requires no cutting or dyeing of hair. Mm-hmm. So all she was doing was braiding the hair. Mm-hmm. All right. Yet Texas insisted she obtain a cosmetology license, which would have required 750 hours of irrelevant barber training even after retaining the Institute for Justice, a public interest law firm, to challenge the requirement, it took Ms. Brantley nearly two decades before she was fully vindicated and Texas reformed its laws in 2015. Crazy. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah. So the reason I bring this up is because when you go through the Facebook postings and emails and other things that I see, you see all kinds of things where midwives... You know, or unlicensed midwives are being persecuted for just doing something where there's no other options, like in rural counties and mm-hmm. things like that. And um, so they go on, basically, in the, in the Wall Street Journal, they say, of late, licensing laws have begun incorporating dubious educational requirements. The District of Columbia is in the process of requiring daycare workers to possess an associate's degree. <laughs> and Tennessee recently passed a law making a high school diploma a prerequisite for a barber's license. Yep. Okay. What is it with these people? Which people? <laughs> Administrators. <laughs> they don't have enough to do. I don't know. Yeah. What? Where? Who thinks this stuff up? You know, why can't anybody cut anybody's hair? And if you don't like it, don't go to them. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> am I too libertarian? Maybe I was uh, influenced by the lecture at the Libertopia Festival, but, but I mean, no, this is me. This has always been mm-hmm, me. It has. It makes no freaking sense. To, you know, I remember one time a few years ago where some kids had a lemonade stand and they the city came and made them close it down. So sad. 
because they didn't have a... Food handling license. Yeah, something of that nature. (laughs) Uh, Licensing requirements aren't the only local laws that harm the poor and the struggling. In 2012, then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg banned food donations to the New York City's homeless shelters on the ground that the food might be salty, fatty, or otherwise unhealthy. So the food police are out there protecting you every day. So Did just, it say the hair police in there? No, it, it didn't oh. say hair police. But <laughs> but no, I mean, don't you feel safer now that the people are out there protecting? You yes. know, like grocery stores will often have lots of food left over that expired, like like um, oranges that, are, or they, that they can't sell anymore, but they're still perfectly fine. Yeah. They have to throw them out. I know. I used to work in uh, catering before I became involved in birth and I would just be so sad at how much food was being thrown out and they and I said why don't we donate this stuff they're like we can't yeah. we can't take it and do any of that stuff right. so yeah it's well, then, just and a shame not only is there are the, 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 the health police like Bloomberg are out there but then the, the ambulance chasing lawyers are out there that if some poor homeless guy eats your three day old orange and gets sick they can then come and sue you which is why your catering company yeah, is probably the main reason they wouldn't be able to give the food to somebody. Hey, did you? I wonder, are we liable? By the way, if we walk out of a restaurant with a, with a doggy bag and there's a homeless guy there, and give it to the homeless guy, and and he then gets gastroenteritis from it. I mean, can I mean I guess, but I don't think that's going to happen because because a homeless person couldn't afford a lawyer anyways. But if a lawyer got no, the lawyer would yeah. find the homeless. Person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. Um, I took Grant. Um, to do um, some volunteer work. Yeah, for, she told me that. Yeah, it's an organization called Drive By Do Gooders, and uh, we actually did hand out food, water, like just cheese sticks, and water and um, wipes to homeless people in downtown LA. It was pretty awesome. Really great organization. And how were you received? By the oh well, this woman has been doing it for years, so she knows a lot oh, of them so they, by they, name, yeah. oh, okay. um, and knows their story and would tell us the story. But there were, I mean, yeah, everybody was really grateful to, especially that day. It was really hot. Yeah, you know, it's really funny. That, I mean, we have we have in my Century City office behind we have an alley behind us yep. where we park. There's been a homeless guy that's been living there for at least fifteen years. Do we know his name? I've seen him. He yeah. washes himself back there. Yeah, no, he does. Yeah. I mean, he's he lives back there. He lives yeah. in our dumpster. Yeah, he's. Naked, right? I think. I've well, sometimes, but no, most of the time he just sits. <laughs> yeah, he's very. I mean, he's he actually watches out for the place, and yeah. he waves at me, and I wave at him. You know, I actually, I try talking to him once or twice. He doesn't really communicate well. Mm-hmm. So one time after last Christmas's goodies had come, I had a canister of like um, uh, three kinds of popcorn. You know, caramel corn, oh, cheese this. corn, and popcorn. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to give it to him, and he opened it up and looked at it, and he goes, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, he didn't want it." <laughs> <laughs> so he's a healthy homeless person. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> Which was great. So anyway, I mean, uh, yeah, it's great that that Grant. You know, you, you need to do these things for your kids. It's a. It's they a need great to, to see do. that they're you know kind of entitled. Well, we're moving right along with our podcast today. I've gotten into one. We've talked to one topic about uh, about stupid licensing laws, but I got other things to go on to. So let's move on. Okay. Did you have something you want to get into? I could talk about our our first fan fan mail. All right, let's do that. Let's okay. do that. So we've got our first fan mail. The two of us. I think you've gotten them before, but I've never gotten fan mail with you. What um, venue did they send it to? Um, what email? Yes. They sent it to askdrstew at gmail. Okay. So people, yeah. if you want to get, contact us, because I didn't give the email at the beginning of the program. Yeah. yeah askdrstew ask at gmail.com. That's askdrstew, S-T-U, at gmail.com. Yeah. And if you have something you want to write us, we'll read it on the air and answer it um, in our podcast. Not always. 
Not always. But I will always respond to every email. <laughs> so if you re- if you write us, if you're unless you're selling something, then I'm not responding. Right. But if you write us and uh, it's not something that we can get to on the podcast, I will respond to every single one. Yeah. Everybody who's ever written me will know, uh, will vouch for me. So this is Deborah Lawrence, and she's a CNM. And, and she gave permission to use her name. She did. Okay. I asked her, um, and she's very excited, actually. So she said, Dr. Stu and Bliss, I'm writing to ask you how I can become a member of the Dr. Stu and Bliss fan club. So I think she should be the president, and she should start it. <laughs> That's what I think. Um, I saw a Facebook post a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Stu interview, and we have decided... I need to meet you. I have listened to at least 20 podcasts in the past two weeks, and I am inspired. I'm a certified nurse midwife in Illinois who's trying to blaze new territory in introducing midwifery to the women of southern central um, Illinois. I love trailblazers, so I'm really excited for her. Um, As with all trailblazing, there have been a few major and minor burns along the way. My experiences and efforts have been focused in hospital settings, providing more women with choices there. However, I am ready to make the leap from hospital setting to home birth. Recently, Illinois had made some legislative efforts to allow advanced practice registered nurses to become independent practitioners. It was actually signed into law this past January, but in traditional Illinois fashion, which I think is probably everywhere, um, we are still awaiting the finished rules and regulations with no idea when they might come. The AMA, of course, opposed the legislation and finally agreed on their terms that each APRN, I guess that's a registered nurse, has a <clears throat> has to demonstrate 4,000 physician-supervised hours and 250 continuing education hours, then you will qualify, which is why I'm bringing this up now after that so th- article. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's 4,000. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, um, um, getting a master's degree in family therapy, you need 3,000 hours. Right. And my for- former wife was, was doing that when I, we were married together, and it, it, it takes years. Yeah. So currently in Illinois, no one is allowed to practice without a collaborating physician agreement. We know about this here in California because you just did one, um, (laughs) which has uh, made it difficult for any CNM to do home births when ACOG objects and many physicians are worried about their liability as collaborating. as a collaborating doctor. The state does not recognize certified midwives or certified professional midwives, so those midwives operate underground illegally. So basically, they're they're not allowing home birth there. South Central Illinois is a unique area that are um, in that there are numerous counties that do not have anyone to provide OB care. Very few hospitals are available that provide OB services. If the hospitals provide any services, often they are limited choices. Most hospitals still have VBAC bans. If the hospital allows VBAC, there are restrictions requiring physicians must be present, which is counterproductive and thus many doctors are reluctant to do. I convinced our practice, which is now a good mix of midwives and physicians, to do VBACs a few years ago. The midwives are very supportive. Oh, no, our doggy's going crazy. Um, But we constantly battle with many physicians who insist that the doctors have to meet um, the doctors at least once to review their risk and then scare the clients from um, into having a C-section and require that if they do not deliver um, by their due date, then they they have to have a return C-section. Um, she even goes on to say, when a patient refuses, it becomes very difficult. I had a patient this past year who was a successful VBAC post two C-sections and they refused to let her do it again. So she had already had a successful. 
Um, and uh, so she is interested in coming out and working with us. She wants to know if we have any advice for her. And um, she said, keep doing what we're doing. Thanks, Deborah. Well, she basically summed up Dr. Stu's podcast. She, yeah, <laughs> it's her, a match made in heaven. In her letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, I, uh, do I have advice for her? Yeah, do we have advice for her? Well, she's welcome to come out here. I don't know if she can do anything, if she's not licensed out here. No, I think she just wants to observe and come and, and kind of, she doesn't have any experience. Unfortunately, I've had little training in home birth because I have not even observed or experienced one. So, Well, we are, we are fighting a, uh, a, mono, a monolithic uh, um, organization that, that, and I'm not just talking about ACOG, I'm talking about the academic, uh, the industrial complex of, of medicine that controls OB, and they're not about to let go. Just everything that she said about what Illinois is doing, mm-hmm. you know, restricting midwives, making these un, un, ridiculous demands, ask, putting th- putting uh, requirements on them that are impossible to achieve, like, you know, having a physician sign off, making patients go to a physician. I mean, all this stuff, first of all, it's a violation. It, it, it's a violation of medical ethics in every stand. I mean, this isn't going to help her with her resolve because... You could you could say these things till you're blue in the face, and they're not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. But forcing a woman to go to, for a consult to anybody is a violation of medical ethics. You can't do that, right? And the idea of where to give birth and how to give birth really does belong to the woman. And you know, I always talked about the well-informed woman. And recently, I was corrected by my good friend Dr. Chavira, who said the uninformed woman has just as many rights to to decide what she wants to do as the informed woman. It's true. They and, just don't necessarily know that they have those rights. No, well, that's yeah. the problem. They don't yeah. know. But yeah. but if an uninformed woman says, "I don't want uh, to sign that," or "I don't want to be monitored," or "I don't want to have a C-section," you know, you can't do it to on her. And yet here they're telling you know they're telling the midwives they have to have these ridiculous four thousand hours and blah blah blah. Do the you know what doctors a lot, a lot you know doctors don't have that sort of training in in, in OB. Mm-hmm. You know, OB residents spend like three months in OB, maybe their first year, maybe two months their second year, and then a little, you know, off and on. If you add up the hours they spent and actually doing patient care rather than busy work and sleeping in the doctor's lounge or going to uh, academic things, they're probably, they probably have less training than that. Right. All right. So if she's looking for logical responses, there, there, are, there are none. <laughs> but just keep uh, going. That's what I yeah, would say. Just, just, just keep going. Just making changes. As Bliss said earlier, she's feeling optimistic that there are changes. And every article I read that, that comes out against home birth is doing so because home birth is becoming more popular. And so the, put you, the inevitable pushback, this is a stage of, of how people learn to accept things. Is one, of the, one of the stages is, is anger and denial and, and pushing back. I'm not talking about grieving. I'm talking about the dealing with sort of mm-hmm. when somebody has a monopoly on something and somebody's coming along and trying to uh, compete with that, the, the, the person who has the monopoly isn't going to suddenly say, is, isn't going to suddenly say, oh, sure, yeah, come on in. You're welcome to the club. They're not going to do that. Right. All right. They're going to fight you. And the, cl- the more power, the more, the more strong that you get in what you're doing, the more they feel like their position has weakness. They, the, the more vehement they get. Mm-hmm. So when I see these articles, and again, we never get to any of them. I got a whole pile. You can see what I've got in front of you here. Mm-hmm. I got a whole pile. We end up seeing the, 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 um, w- that we are making a difference. Yeah. That 
that women are becoming more educated, that groups like improvingbirth.org and the Moms March that was just this past week, and uh, my friend Kristen Pascucci is trying to get funds for making a movie uh, called Mother May I about obstetric violence. Um, you know, we're hoping that, that these sorts of things become awareness and, and things will grow. You know, and the Me Too movement is going to help this a little bit because, you know, even though it seems like everything about women is, is in, the, in the mainstream, in the forefront, birth is still lagging way behind. As yeah. far as as far as the rights go, but I do feel like it's changing, and I hadn't really thought about the connection until this week. I think I saw an article about that the Me Too movement is really going to affect um, what we do in terms of women knowing that they have a right and things that happen are not okay and they can speak up. So one of the dangers of the Me Too movement, and I and I saw it in a thread recently because ACOG was stupid enough to post a uh, a uh, uh, Instagram picture of ACOG did. What did I just say? ACOG in on Instagram? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, at They're their at their meeting Instagram. they posted on Instagram a picture of the 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 number one solution to maternal mortality is a is a smiley condom. You 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 yeah. might have seen that, but yeah. it, it and it was actually a stupid post and and it's not it wasn't reflective of the whole main of the talk that the guy was giving, but whoever made that slide is an idiot. Yeah. Uh the 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 point being is that some of the th- the thread some people were saying men should have nothing to do with obstetrics. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand where that, that, that's a feminist, me too, angry statement that's not well thought out either. Mm-hmm. Just as the condom slide wasn't thought out, the person who said this co- comment wasn't thought out. Mm-hmm. All right. Because it really isn't male or female. There are probably the majority of people in ACOG right now, as far as in the, in the um, administrative show, ACOG are probably female. Mm-hmm. So it isn't, the sex of the person it's the culture of the of the environment that leads people even good people to do stupid things or say stupid things or push back against the very own ethical things that they're supposed to be supporting right okay so uh, along that line because we're really running out of time here i just want to just go through one uh client that i was referred to so the last thing we'll do today but um a, a patient was sent to me because at 21 weeks, she had an ultrasound, and they found a thing called an isolated echogenic left ventricular focus. Which we've talked about. It's a little ditzel on the heart that shines up brightly. And as an isolated f- finding, it generally means absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, babies with chromosomal abnormalities will slightly have an increased incidence of this fo- echogenic focus, but they almost always have other findings as well. Right. Most people who have this will, will, under, will agree to undergo genetic testing, that, like an NIPT test, it's a blood test on mom, to determine that the baby doesn't have Downs or, or some other trisomy. This mother decided not to do it. And at near term, she went back in for another ultrasound. And of course, the, the, the echogenic focus persisted. All the other anatomy was normal. Mm-hmm. Okay, And she wants to have a home birth. And the maternal fetal medicine specialist that she saw wrote this in her in her summary knowing full well that the person that patient was referred by a home birth midwife okay because it's on the report as who the referring person was Mm -hmm. but this is what she wrote Uh, first of all she wrote a disclaimer saying limitations of ultrasound in diagnosing all fetal structure abnormalities and aneuploidy was reviewed in other words she's telling the woman that I'm really good at this but in case I miss something it's not my fault right all right then she says, the patient states she is planning a home birth. 
This stems from her desire for more natural process from her sister's negative experience giving birth in the hospital setting. The patient was counseled on the risks, benefits, and alternatives to this. How much do you want to bet? And how much does she actually know? And what, but how much do you want to bet she was really counseled? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what she said. The client was informed that although planned home birth is associated with fewer internal, maternal interventions than planned hospital birth, it is also associated with a more than twofold increased risk of perinatal death and a threefold increased risk of neonatal seizures or a serious neurologic dysfunction. She's putting this in her consult report, which is way out of line. This is verbatim quoted from ACOG's statement, which is taken from the wax paper, which has been soundly refuted. Mm-hmm. All right, But she's, she's putting this in there. She's not talking anything about the risks of cesarean section, what are the woman's desires, what if she wants a third baby, a fourth baby, blah, blah, blah. I said that she was a VBAC candidate. Did I not say that? As the I don't think so. Oh. No, no, she's not a VBAC candidate. What am I talking about? Okay. She just wants a home birth. Right. Right. Right, right. Right. I'm mixing up all my cases. <laughs> all right. Um, so ACOG believes that hospitals and accredited birth centers are the safest settings for birth. Okay. That's, that's in their statement. Mm-hmm. So she puts that in her statement. All right. I would like to ask this person, what does an accredited birth center have that a home birth doesn't have? She doesn't know. She doesn't know. Yeah, she doesn't know. And ACOG must not know. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, a lot of a lot of times when my clients come back and talk about how doctors have told them that they shouldn't have a home birth, they have no idea what we do. They don't know that we monitor the baby. They don't know that we can give antibiotics. They don't know that we have GBS protocols. They don't know any of this stuff. Yeah. So, I, I think we should do in services if they'll let us. They won't. <laughs> they're not. They're, well, you know, it's again, on my list. Again, I think that there are p- better people than that than I. I tend to be a little acerbic. You know, a, a little, you know, I can't help my cynicism and my, my mm-hmm. I try to keep the sarcasm to, you know, I was watching a little bit of the, of the um, Senate review hearing of this person that's being put up for CIA director, this woman. Um, I'm very excited about the fact that there's potentially a woman going to be the CIA director. And um, how these people answer these questions from these hostile senators you know, and keeping the respect mm-hmm. is amazing to me. Yeah. You know, it's a discipline that I, I just don't, I, I, I wouldn't have that. <laughs> All right. She, but she also says each woman has the right to make a medically informed decision about delivery mm-hmm. after just basically scaring the bejeebers out of her. Mm-hmm. And she goes on and just basically says, I strongly encourage her to consider delivering at an accredited birth center as this represents the safest setting for birth. So again, this is in her thing, but I'm just, I read this and I just say, does she understand what an accredited birth center is? Right. It's accredited by the AABC. It basically means that you pay a fee and a, you get to put a, a sticker on your door. A big fee. And you put a sticker on your door mm-hmm. and you can't really do breaches or VBACs or twins. Right. But you don't have any more supplies there than you would have at a home birth. No. Exactly. The, I mean, we know this from working at the sanctuary. It's really our, you know, our home or their home is what we used to yep. say. Yep. And yeah, there's no real difference. Okay. So that's that. Mm-hmm. That's, I think we're running out of time today. I think we really didn't get to anything that I wanted to get to, but that's typical of... I well, talked more this time. Uh, yeah. Well, I like when you talk yeah, more. Yeah, I said. <laughs> yeah, you were less plasterious. <laughs> so anyway, um, this is... By, by the way, I think I forgot at the beginning to say this is podcast number 127. Mm-hmm. So for our, 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 our number one fan... Yeah. Who's only listened to 20 podcasts? So far. You've got said, 107 to go. She said, I have to get back to it. Yeah, That's, you got yeah. 107 to go. So this is podcast number 127. Again, this has been Dr. Stuart Fishbein with Bliss Young. 
Uh, we're so glad that you're listening to Dr. Stu's podcast. You can find us on Facebook. Yeah. DrStu'sPodcast.com. And Instagram, Birthing, I'm going to post pictures. Birthing, oh, and, and now Bliss is going to try to get me to do Facebook Live and Instagram. I am. I'm, right. It's happening. I know. Because you <laughs> know what? People have told me that Instagram is the number one social media thing for people under 25. Yeah. So I think I'm going to have to start an Instagram account. I've been already talking to Renee about it. Yeah. And we'll get on that. Any, any thoughts, comments, you write, write us at AskDrStu at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. This is Dr. Stu's podcast, number one. 27. It does not yet have a title. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.